All right, so we are in 2 Samuel chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 25. We're going to get right to the doorstep of Homside and then leave that for next week. So before we begin, let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for this time to worship you, to gather as your people, to glorify you, to sing your praises, to Lord, consider our sins, to consider your goodness and righteousness, to consider, Lord, um, your your healing hands. You know, Lord, what ails each of us. You know, Lord, what, what we need to hear for conviction and what we need to hear for comfort. And I pray, Lord, that we would, in our turn, each hear exactly what we need. We thank you and we praise you and amen. So this week, I'm going to just jump right in and pick up where we left off from last week. 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1 says this, There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. Now, war has come to the house of Israel. It's open warfare at this point, and it is a civil war. Now, um, civil wars are a very particular kind of war. I think it's very, uh, people are very confused about what civil war means, especially because the American civil war is actually mislabeled. A civil war is where two factions are fighting over control of one government. You have two parties who both want to control Washington, D.C. If you have two parties who want to control Washington, D.C. and be the government, you have a civil war. If you have one group that wants to split away and become its own nation, that is not a civil war. So the war for American independence was not a civil war. The war for uh, Southern independence, as we like to call it in the history books, is also not a civil war. A civil war is when two groups are fighting for control of a single nation. Now, in Israel, you have two, two sides, two factions, clashing over who is going to lead the nation. And in, in, in this conflict that's very long, and I'm going to argue that, it's not, that it is long and not decisive because David refuses to go and slaughter his enemies. I think that it could have been over much, quick, much quicker. But David does not want to kill his enemies. He wants peace. He wants unity. He, he's making moves, as we're going to see. He's being very cunning to win this war with, by slaughtering as few people as possible. But the war is going his way. He's increasing and, and succeeding, whereas Saul's house is decreasing and failing. In the second half of verse 1, it says that David's house was growing stronger and stronger, and Saul's house was growing weaker and weaker. That's David's design. That's how he's going to win. David is winning battles. He's increasing in wives. He's having heirs. He's surrounding Ishbosheth's kingdom in a vice grip of alliances. Right? His, 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 the number of children is getting bigger. The number of wives is getting bigger. The bigger. His household is growing. His area of influence is growing. His partners in the region are growing. He's becoming very, very powerful. And Saul's household is diminishing. Uh, the great reformer, our Italian brother, Peter Martyr Vermigli, if you've never heard of him, he's worth a look. He's had to, this is how he uh, explains what's going on in Israel. It says, one statement in the beginning of this chapter can be stated to represent the whole section. The house of David always increased, while the house of Saul continuously decreased. The increasing of David's house is demonstrated by means of his many ascensions. First, by means of his growing progeny, 
which he began in Hebron. Then by means of the treaty he strikes with Abner, through which all of the Israelites inclined towards him come over to his side. Then by means of the restitution of his wife, Michael. And finally, by means of the death of Abner himself. This struggle was long-lasting, but David increased because he depended on faith and patience. But Ishbosheth diminished day by day because he retained a kingdom that was opposed to God's word. It is a rebel kingdom. It is a kingdom that ought not to exist. It's a kingdom that, the, that Saul's household should have handed over to David. And because they're disobedient, their house decreases. David's house, in his house, he's obedient, and so it increases. But what we have to consider is the fact that David is, though he is sowing many seeds, that is bearing many fruit, he is sowing other things alongside his fruitful plants. He, he is also sowing weeds, which is going to choke out some of the fruit of his household. And that's what I want us to consider today. As we are pursuing the things that God tells us to pursue, right? What is the end? Where are we headed? There is a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it. There is a right way to be fruitful and multiply. And as we're going to see in David's household, there is a wrong way to be fruitful and multiply, right? A man who has 20 wives can be very fruitful and multiply very fast. But is that exactly what God meant when he said, go forth and be fruitful and multiply? Okay. God said, take dominion of, of the earth. David is clearly taking dominion. Now, what he's also doing, though, is aligning himself with Gentiles, which he's not allowed to do. So what we're going to see is that all these parallel lines, he's, he's planting very fruitful plants, and alongside some of those plants, he is also sowing weeds. And, and this, is, is my argument, is what we all are doing. Remember his nephew Asahel. Asahel was strong and swift, and he pursued his enemy, not thinking of the conclusion of the matter, and ran himself right onto the spear butt, of his enemy. Uh, David is doing the same thing. He is pursuing what he thinks he ought to pursue, but he, what he is, he's not considering is the end result. What happens when you have six wives and six sons, and they're not all of the house of Israel? What could possibly go wrong with that? <laughs> when you're making alliances with, with um, nations outside of Israel, what could possibly go wrong with that? When you go and reclaim your wife, Michael, Right? Oh, he's getting his wife back. That's, that seems great. What could possibly go wrong with such a plan? And, and that is what's happening here. He is increasing. And alongside those fruitful fields, he is planting weeds. And this is, I believe, what most of us are doing. And, and so considering a story like this, like what we had read for us today, what, how did Nathan get through to David? He tells him a story. And David, who doesn't realize at first that he's the person in the story, listens to the story and makes a proper judgment. He gets a little distance from himself. He, he, he's engaged in his imagination, and he's able to see that he is the person that Nathan is talking about. And so I, and that is, like, that is preaching in a nutshell. Like, half the time, it's just a story you're telling to get people to stop and look at their own lives differently. Right? How many times have you heard a sermon from me where I'm preaching along and preaching along, and all of a sudden at the end, I flip it and say, this is you I'm talking about. Right? And, and, and it's always painful to hear that. But in a story like this, you may not be a king. You may not have six wives. Okay? You, you may not be um, like Michael, the, the lady in the story, who's this property that just gets handed around by all the men, powerful men. You may not be exactly in the same circumstances people are. Okay, but you have a big bag of seeds, and in that bag you have weeds and you have fruitful plants, and you are sowing left, right, and center 
both kinds of seeds. And what we have to do is figure out which is which. Now, these two houses are going in opposite directions. And that is what we're going to read now in, in verses ch- uh, 2 through 11. It says, and, and sons were born to David at Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon of Aenoam of Jezreel, and his second, Chiliab of Abigail, and the widow of Nabal of Carmel, and third, Absalom, the son of Micah, Micah the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. And those are Gentiles. Those are not Israelites. The fourth is Adonijah, Adonijah, sorry, the son of Haggith. And the fifth is Shephatiah. Man, I miss the Greek. (laughs) I miss the New Testament sometimes. The son of Habatiah. And the sixth is Ithraim of Eglah, David's wife. These were born to David in Hebron. Meanwhile, while there was a war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. And Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah and the daughter of Aiah. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day I keep showing steadfast love. That word is you said. I'm showing you said to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers, to his friends, and have not given you into the hand of David. And yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman. Now, God do so to Abner and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has so sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah, from Dan to Beersheba. And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. Now, there you go. You can see, plain and simple, one household is getting bigger and stronger, one household is diminishing. David has been very busy in Hebron and quite fruitful. He's taking dominion. But polygamy was forbidden to Israelite kings. They are ordered not to multiply wives. Now, what happened to David seeking the, word, seeking the will of the Lord? What happened to David not making a move, right? When he was outside the land, he heard Saul's dead. He doesn't even come back into Israel until he checks with God. And he doesn't even go to a particular city until he checks with God. Now, he's doing the exact opposite of what kings are told to do. Now, let's go to this passage in Deuteronomy. It's in chapter 17 of Deuteronomy. Chapter 17 of Deuteronomy here. And I'm just going to read this section because this is the very thing Samuel was warning them about. Samuel said, when you get a king, he's going to to take things. And, and what God wanted in his law for the kings was a law against them taking things. Don't take. Don't be a taker. Be a giver. And this is what we read about what they're not supposed to do in chapter 17, verses 14 to 17. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations, like all the nations around me, you may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers, you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you, who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself, or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And it goes on. It's saying, don't do these things. And what is David doing? 
David is doing the very things that God has commanded the kings not to do. If you marry a, a, a Gentile woman and you have a child who's half Gentile, are you setting up the, the next lineage, right? You're, you're bringing foreign royal blood into the household. You're, you're possibly setting up a situation where a non-Israelite is the king of Israel. You're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to multiply wives. The increasing of David's house should be done according to God's word, God's will. But David is expanding his house through marriage, through political marriages to boot. He's beginning to take, as Samuel had warned the kings, would. And though prudent and cunning, which we're going to see, he is building a house wider than the foundation set by Yahweh. Now think about this for a moment. He's building a house wider than the foundation set by Yahweh. Now, and, and I, right, I'm not by any means a civil engineer, <laughs> but I can tell you right now that's a recipe, recipe for destruction. If you have a footprint for a house, and then you build a house that's actually wider than the footprint you've poured, what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> right? And, and God says, build on this footprint. Here's the footprint. Build on it, right? And as you go up, the, the shape of the house should look an awful lot like the shape of the foundation. David, though, is overshooting his foundation in every direction here by quite a bit. And as he builds his house up, what is it possibly going to do besides crumble in on itself? Now, this is where I think, you know, hagiography is this idea where you, 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 you praise people. You write biographies about people where they can do no wrong, where you just worship them. And there are some people in, in our circles that we, we can't do any, you know, that can't do any harm, right? Calvin was never incorrect, ever. No, it's, it's not actually not true. You can find where he's incorrect. And, and what we do with David is we, we either make him an absolute villain or we, we, we enter into this realm where we make him so saintly that he, we can't possibly be anything like him. But right here you can see that, that he is just a mere man like you and I. He is a, a, a mere human. He is, he is a man of flesh. He is building wider than what God has allowed him to build. And it's not going to go well and in your households the question is are you building on on the on the foundation that was poured for you is does the 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 stories of the house as you go up does it match the foundation or is it smaller is it wider david is just like us and we do the same thing he does that's why we needed jesus he needs jesus and we need jesus So as he's planting seeds that are going to lead ultimately to the savior of the world, he's also planting seeds that are going to cause one of his kids to rape another one of his kids, and then that brother's going to kill that guy, and then bada bing, bada boom, you got a war on. And he's doing it simultaneously. Now, as we have noticed, David has an eye for beauty. This is why he he chose Abigail. She was both beautiful inside and out. She She was the total package. He took her as his wife. And um, as he goes on, he's not going to simply just marry women for the beauty, though. Okay? It's not just about, about fecundity. It's not just about fruitfulness. You're going to see that he's making choices, not just because he likes the young ladies, but because it benefits his household in ways beyond, right? He's, he's going beyond what a marriage ought to be. Right? I'd not marry my wife because the, between the tribe of Bellevue and Renton, it would work out a little bit better. Right? I mean, that was, we were not uniting the households. It, it was about her. And David is picking women, and he's choosing them and bringing them into his household, and it's not about her. It's about what she brings to the table. 
Now, what kind of marriage is that? When your kids, right, and you're growing up in that household, what are you going to figure out real quick, right? Dad doesn't like mom for mom's sake. He likes mom for her dad's sake. (laughs) Now, ironically, the very institution intended to unify Israel and build Israel is in his hands being abused is what's going to divide Israel. Now, isn't that just like us? Right? Isn't that just like his nephew? The very thing that we're given that's supposed to be a blessing, that's supposed to be the means to fulfill God's commands, is, if it's abused, the thing that we use to destroy. So instead of children being this glorious thing that we, we release into the world, if, we don't, if we're not faithful in it, if we're not building right, on the foundation that is given to us, you end up sending people into the world that the world has to deal with because you didn't. And, and this is why the state exists. The state exists because there's bad parents. Because somebody's got to punish these people. And, and our job is to raise children and to build on this foundation, to build a structure that can stand on its own. Now, David had married Abigail. She's also from Judah, from an area in Judah. So he, he was consolidating his power base in Judah. He marries a, a woman named Anna Noam, who's from Jezreel, another part of Israel. So he's now gaining... Um, allies in the north part of the country. David also has a wife from Geshur, a Gentile kingdom in the Transjordan north of uh, Ishbosheth's headquarters. And so don't you think Ishbosheth is going to start sweating a little bit when he looks out his window in every direction and there's the allies of David? It's kind of hard to move and, not, and go unseen when you've got your enemy's friends all around you. Now this is a good way to do it. right? If you're going to actually take over a kingdom, this is a good way to do it. But is this, what, is this how God said to do it? And, and I think that this in lies the problem with modern Christians. Is that sanctified wisdom you're using? Or is that the wisdom of the world you're using? Right? And, 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 and the, Trump, <laughs> the Trump era, we've been very confused about the difference. Right? He's cunning, Mr. Trump, and, and very effective. And a lot of us are like, ooh, we could do that too. But is, is the way he's doing it, the way he's done it, that everyone so, has been so obsessed with, is that, did Trump go about building right, a kingdom the way he ought to have? In, by any standard. And, and, and so many of us are seduced by this kind of thing. What David is doing is he's, he's seduced by international politics. He went to the University of Hebron, and he got a degree in international policy, and he is acing the course. But that is not what God said to do. The list of David's sons comes next, and after a summary statement about the long war of succession between Saul's house and David's, the list of sons shows that David will have several potential successors. As what, he has several firstborns. They don't really tell us who, right, who supersedes who, especially if one of them is half Gentile. Does that automatically make one of them lower? Right? When, you ha- when, when it's about succession and you have this many sons, I can tell you from history, it does not usually go well. If, you, if, you're, if you're concerned about these things, it's usually best to have one good, strong, healthy son and a bunch of daughters, because then you don't have any war. <laughs> right? But when you have this many sons and it's not exactly sure of the birth order, you're, you're, you're creating a recipe for a lot of trouble. Okay, obviously, David's sons Amnon and Absalom are listed here. Right? There's a lot of foreshadowing in this chapter. These are characters that are going to come back later with a vengeance. 
Amnon and Absalom are listed here, two sons who will enter into deadly conflict with one another. The list is a potent foreshadowing of another long war of succession following David's reign. There is a lot of trouble after, after David dies. He has a lot of sons, and they are going to go to war just like he's at war. Right? The same sins that he has with the house of Saul are going to come back, but it's going to be within the house of David. He is sowing seeds that are going to come back, and it's not going to bear fruit. He, he is pursuing his quarry, his dominion, and his fruitfulness. He's pursuing these things like Azahel, not considering the end. Where were all these lives, wives and children lead, David? Where are they leading you? What is your responsibility to those in your, in your own household that you are using for statecraft? What about the house itself? What about the people in it? There is a spear end here at the end of this pursuit. And, and as we had read for us to have it, what happens in the household of David? What happens to his own children? And, and who got the ball rolling? David did. Meanwhile, Saul's house, at the same time, is full of distrust and fruitlessness. The only one increasing in Saul's house is the man behind the throne at the head of the army, Abner. Now, if you're the king and the man who's in charge of your military is the only one that's getting stronger, you would be nervous, I think. You would think, well, that guy's getting more powerful, and I'm a weakling. So, so what happens next actually, demonstrates that Ishbosheth is a lot like his father. Saul was a man who falsely accused a lot of people, he can, especially trustworthy people, very trustworthy people he accused of wrongdoing. And, and through that, brought all this trouble and, and acrimony within Israel. And now Ishbosheth is going to do the same thing. And I just want to point out something interesting. Um, you know, moderns tend to have their very specific problems. And what I have found with modern people is that typically when the accusation is powerful enough, we assume guilt because the accusation is so serious. Now, I could give you in politics and in the, in the public sphere the, the, this whole all kinds of examples of this. Right? Like the Me Too movement uh, was, was something that in, in a lot of ways was brought about by if you, if you simply accused people of it and it was nasty enough, people just assumed that person was guilty and now we cancel them. And we're all about this now. Well, we got to cancel that guy. Well, did anyone actually stop and figure out if what happened actually happened? And, and the commentators fell into this modern trap. A, a lot of commentators think that, that uh, he actually slept with this woman because he's accused of sleeping with this woman. There is no evidence that he actually did it. There's none. He's accused of it. And he says he didn't do it. And then this, you know, they don't, they don't, the authors then say, okay, well, he actually did it, just so everyone knows. No, it doesn't say at all that he did it. And so it's left up to us to, to judge whether he did or not. And it's interesting to me that a lot of modern commentators automatically assume he did it just because he's accused of it, which, which is why biblical justice is, is, has fallen on hard times. Right? The standards in the Bible are two witnesses, and, and so often people don't have two witnesses. And you see this playing out again and again and again. You see this in confirmation hearings. You see this with pastors. Uh, you see this with uh, famous people of all kinds. That somebody makes a wild accusation. There's no follow-up evidence. There's no second witness. And, but everybody assumes that they're guilty because they were accused. And strict biblical justice is missing in our day. And you can see that it was missing here. Okay? He accuses him for, for no other reason that he's jealous of his power and, and, and his popularity. That's it. He's just like his dad. His dad does not like people superseding him. And so he's going to accuse him of sleeping with one of his father's concubines. Now, this charge has both a sexual and political dimension. 
in ancient kings, brides, and concubines represented the kingdom itself because they constituted part of the king's household. Wives and concubines were part of a king's inheritance, passed into the care, if not into the bed, of his successors. We're going to read later on. If you didn't always take them in as your wives, but if you succeeded another king, you acquired his household and you were supposed to take care of it and protect it because it represented the nation itself. Israel, or the, the king of Israel is seen as a husband to his people, so the wives of a king symbolize the national bride. And so protecting the bride symbolizes the king's ability to protect the kingdom. If you want to humiliate a man who's a king and demonstrate that he's weak and can't do anything to defend himself, you go in and you take possession of his harem, which is what Absalom is going to do to David. We, we heard that today. Be, because of what David did in secret, God has been going to allow it to happen to David in public. And Absalom takes his harem up on a building and sleeps with them in public under the, under the eyes of the sun and everyone there, demonstrating that he's taking the kingdom from his father. So the false accusation here isn't that there is just sexual impropriety, but that he's actually attempting to take the throne. He's accusing him of trying to steal the throne. Now, d- does it seem like he needs to do that to take the throne? If, he, if he's the only one in Saul's house getting stronger, Abner, he's getting stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger. He's the one who put Ishbosheth on the throne. He's the one who, is, who has all the power. Do you think that that guy, who, who at this point is actually quite aged, needs to go through this kind of process in order to take the kingdom from Ishbosheth? Right? At the end here, Ishbosheth is, says what? Nothing. He's afraid of him. It doesn't seem like he's got to go through all that in order to take the kingdom. It seems like he could just push Ishbosheth down and take it from him. So this, this whole false accusation is not just that he, it's sexual impropriety, but that he's attempting to wrest the kingdom from him, which is clearly nonsensical because he could just take it from him whenever he wanted. Ishbosheth's accusation against Abner implies his designs to take the kingdom. Now, unlike David, who praised the Yesed of the men of Gilead, remember? What did David do? How did he treat those men who honored Saul? He honored them. He showed them Yesed. He said, may God show you Yesed for the Yesed that you have shown Saul, the anointed of the Lord. In, in this story here, Abner is stating, you don't know how to treat people with Yesed. I've shown nothing but loyalty to your house, nothing but loyalty to your father's house, and you're going to falsely accuse me. And, and what Abner does not want is a repeat of his father. He's like, okay, I've seen this before, and I saw what it did, because what did Saul accuse David of? Right, trying to take kingdom. He accused him, falsely accused him of all kinds of things and tried to kill him. And what Abner does not want is a, is a repeat. So he's angry because he's falsely accused. He's angry because the house of Saul is clearly not supposed to... I think the proof is in the pudding. He rebelled originally against David being king because he was loyal, out of loyalty to, to Saul's house. Now what has become clear to him is that God actually is with the house of David. He's like, and I'm not going to have this again. I'm not going to support this again. Been there, done that, got the T-shirt. Somebody find David. So Abner points out that he could, at any moment, hand this whole thing over to David, which is what he decides to do. He's like, I'm I'm done with you. I'm out of here. Furious at being treated, as he says, like a dog's head, a worthless thing, Abner swears to help David rule from Dan to Beersheba, which is a euphemism for the whole nation. 
The Bible never says that Abner actually had relations with Rizpah. His protests are honest ones. Ishbosheth's charge makes no sense. He's a paranoid king like his father, and, and from Abner's perspective, this episode was the last straw. He's done. And so he is now going to become a Gibeonite. Remember when he was in Gibeah, Gibeon? Like the, the Gibeonites, the tribe that switched loyalty over to the house of Israel, now he's becoming a Gibeonite. He's going over to the side of David, and that's what we read next, starting in verse 12. And Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf, saying, To whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. And he said, Good, I will make a covenant with you. But one thing I require of you, that is, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, then you come, when you come to see my face. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife, Michael, for whom I paid the bride price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took from took her from her husband Peltiel, the son of Lahish. But her husband went with her, weeping after her all the way to Behurim. Then Abner said to him, Go, return. And he returned. So David's going to build his own home, by build his own household by breaking up happy households. This is now what he's going to do. I, I'm sure that this is what God intended in Deuteronomy 17 by increasing your household. Abner contacts David immediately. Abner's question is, Whose is the land? He says, whose land is this? Implying what? <laughs> Abner stating it's mine. Okay, I made it one king already. I can make another one. Abner is a very, very powerful man. He is succeeding in a household that's crumbling. He is the one who first put Ishbosheth on the throne. He is now switching his allegiance. It is a good, this is a good way forward. This is what David has been waiting for. An opportunity to unite the people of God, to fix the household without shedding blood. His patience is being paid off. David jumps at the opportunity to accomplish peacefully what he had been unable to accomplish through a long civil war. Abner goes to work on David's behalf immediately, conferring with first the elders of Israel. And this part is very strange. It seems to me... Oh, I actually didn't read all the way down that part. Hold on. Yeah, okay, it says, And Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, For some time past you have been seeking David as your king over you. Now then bring it about, for your Lord has promised David, saying, so they've been wanting this for a long time. So who in the world has been, has been supporting this civil war if the elders of Israel all along wanted David? So Abner has woken up, right? He, he's figured out that he is going the wrong direction. And so he's turning and he's making right what has happened. So he's the statesman now that's going to go and, and, and meet with all the different tribes and bring them over to the side of David. And, and it's interesting because he has to meet with the Benjaminites themselves because that's his own tribe. And ben, the Benjaminites are about to throw off their king, Ishbosheth, and go over to the side of David. So you can see the one working, like not only is he powerful over the army, he's clearly a statesman. He is clearly a man who knows how to make alliances and make peace and deal in, in a difficult political situation. David makes a single request in the midst of all this, right? He didn't say, go and bring me all the nations or all the other tribes. Go to this tribe and that tribe. His, his request is to bring him Michael, his wife. Now, Michael and he, it's not recorded. They did not have a divorce. Michael was simply taken and given to another man and made her husband. Now, the law is very clear about this. If, if, if a man divorces a woman and she goes and marries another man, and then that guy dies, the first guy can't have her back. 
Okay, once you, once you lose a woman, generally you don't get her back. Uh, and, and, and what is the, the premise here? Like, should the original of sin between, with Saul have happened? Should Saul have taken her and given her to another household? No. But at this point, what, who, what is the point of, of this? Who are you serving by this plan? This, this, is, this is what I'm saying. You, don't, you have six wives already, David. How many do you need? Now, this, granted, this was your wife originally, but is that the case now? Like, why are you doing this? It does not explain why he's doing this. Now, he wants, right? And, and he, as the marriages have gone, they've gotten more and more political and less and less relational. He loved Abigail very much and took her into his household. He loved her. He thought she was wise and right and good, and he brought her in, and there was, there was passion there. But as he's gone on, it's gotten more and more political. Now he's taking Michael because why? Because now what he, he will be a part of Saul's household again. And if they have a child together, then what you're doing is you're uniting the houses. There is no relational love in this. There is no yesed in this. He's not being loyal to his wife. This is a political move of the worst possible kind. And as we are going to see, right, is this the only time David steals another man's wife? Ah, hmm. Well, he planted that. Well, I've done it before. Might as well do it again. You know what you want to do when you want to show everybody you're king? You take men's wives. Because who's going to stand up to you? Right? I mean, a woman can't say no. And what, what, what are the men going to do? Fight you? You're the king. So what you see is that as he's building his household, as he's pursuing the things that God told him to pursue, you can see he's wreaking havoc left and right. He's got political marriages. He's breaking up happy homes. This, this story about the husband, this is so ridiculously sad. He's weeping and pursuing her until a man who is the head of the army says, go back. And what happened to him? We never hear about what happened to him, right? Did they have children? Now, this is all foreshadowing. What we see is that David is building his house bigger than the, than the foundation he's been given, and what is going to happen to that house? He's, he's developing the habit of taking wives. He's running toward the spear that will impale him, just like Asahel. Now, Abner the statesman brings the people over, Okay. He brings the, these, these nations over. It's also very interesting that um, they work out this deal about getting Michael back. David sends word to Ishbosheth, give me back my wife. And even though there's supposed to be these powerful kings at war with one another, Ishbosheth says, yes, sir. And it just demonstrates the utter weakness of his house. When you have a foreign king making these kinds of demands on you and you just go with it, you, you should just turn in the, the rifles at that point and quit. He, there, there is no resisting David. David is increased to the point now where the only thing left is for Abner to hand him over the whole nation. Now, David, though, and, and this is what I like about this story. People are, are a mixed bag, aren't they? Are all of your motives bad? No, not at all. Are all of your motives good? No. Right? Are, are you planting fruitful seeds? Oh, yes. Are you planting seeds that are going to grow up to be weeds that choke the fruitful, some of the fruitful plants? Yes. And what you see here with David is the, right, he's pursuing peace of all things. You're like, wow, that's amazing. That is amazing that you're doing that. But look at the, right, the number of bodies under the bus at this point. Right? This peace bus that he's driving down the road as fast as he can is starting to stack up quite a few bodies underneath it. 
it, it, it's sowing the seeds of rebellion and death and rape and murder in his own house. Right? It, it's not Abner who's the one who, who's violating women. It's David. It's David who, who's the seducer. It's David who's the wife stealer, even as he's pursuing the peace of God's kingdom. And what we tend to do is we think we're all one or the other. Right? We're, well, we're peacemakers, baby. We're just here for the word of God. We do exactly what he says. We're, we're pursuing fruitfulness and dominion, and we're doing it. And that's what God told us to do. Okay, well, let's sit down for a moment, and let's think about how we're doing it. Right? What, is fruitful, what does God want fruitfulness? Is there a lot of ways to be fruitful? Yes. Can, can, you, can you take something like this, a command, and pursue it in such a way that you end up on the end of a spear butt? Yes. <laughs> and, and, and what we all need to do is unlike David and Asahel, is slow down and consider some things. We need to open the word of God, and like Nathan had done with David, we have to consider things from a different point of view. Are we pursuing the, the right things the wrong way? Are we, as we're pursuing the right things, leaving a lot of bodies under the bus? Now, the next section gets really interesting. In verse 20, that's where I'll start. When Abner came with 20 men to David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, I will rise and go and will gather all Israel to my, to my lord the king, that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may reign over all, all that your heart desires. All that your heart desires. Dangerous. Dangerous. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. Just then, the servants of David arrived with Joab from a raid, bringing much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David at Hebron, for he had sent him away, and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the army that was with him came, it was told Joab, Abner the son of Ner came to the king, and has let him go, and he has let him go, and he has gone in peace. Then Joab went to the king and said, What have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you have sent him away so that he is gone? You know that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you and to know you're, you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you are doing. Now, there, there is a whole um, moderately distracting, interesting thing going on here with all the ver- various ins and outs. People are coming in. People are going out. People are coming in. And they're going out. And, and there's all this transition. And, that, and it's a metaphor. I'm, I'm not going to go further than that. It's a metaphor for what's happening. Right? One kingdom is going in, one kingdom is going out. One household is coming in, one household is going out. And there's a play in the Hebrew, Hebrew language here that demonstrates, like they're doing it with language and syncopation, exactly what's actually happening in the story. It, it's supposed to be very fast, and it's supposed to be very like back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And, and so that part is interesting, but there's something deeper going on here. Right? Joab is going to d- d- demonstrate what household he actually is of. And it's not David's. Now, having secured Michael and the support of all Israel, Abner and David sealed their covenant with a feast of wine. Okay? They sit down and have a meal together to demonstrate that they are at peace, just like we do here with the Lord. Right? This is usually what happens when you make peace in a covenant with one another. You cut a covenant. There is a meal afterward to demonstrate the fellowship of the covenant. Abner and David had been on opposite sides of a war, but they made peace. They have clearly a lot of respect for one another. They have a lot of... Um, they, they clearly are brothers. They're being reunited here. Joab, who had been out raiding, is astounded that David and Abner had made peace in his absence. He's angry. Now, let's think about this for a moment. Why does Joab hate Abner? Because Abner killed his brother in battle. 
Now, does Joab want peace for the household of Israel? He doesn't mention it at all. He doesn't care about peace. He wants vengeance. He is angry at the king. He's accusing the king of being a fool. You don't even know that this guy is coming in to to observe you and see what you're doing, David, you idiot. And, And the spirit of Joab here is very, very wicked. He's accusing both Abner and David. But who were the two men sitting honestly and openly making peace for the household of God? So Joab is an accuser, right? Satan is an accuser. The, the household of Satan is full of accusers. Uh, Ishbosheth was an accuser of Abner. Now, now Joab is also an accuser. He is not, right? He may be a covenant member, but he's not a son of God. On one level, his hostility to Abner is personal, but it's also professional, it, it, right? He, who do you think is going to displace Joab in David's affections if Abner, this great statesman and warrior, brings him the kingdom, right? You're like, okay, well, Joab, you're great. Here you go. You get a battalion. Go out in the field, and now this Abner is the secretary of state, <laughs> right? He's going to be overshadowed a great deal. So not only does he personally hate him because he, he killed his brother in battle, but he hates him because he's going to displace him. He's going to displace him in the kingdom. He's more concerned about his own vengeance. He's more concerned about his own, um, his own position than he is about the position of Israel. David sees uh, this visit as an opportunity to make peace with a former enemy, to recover his brother. Joab said Abner went off. And this phrasing is sometimes a euphemism for death in the Bible. Okay? He, he's, he's speaking about Abner in a way where he's foreshadowing what he's going to do. He doesn't just say that he went away. He says that he died. He died. That's usually a euphemism for, you know, he passed away. That's kind of what he says here. He passed on. Because his intent, we're going to see next week, is to do exactly that. Put him away. But there's also, oddly, a sexual connotation in the accusation. And this is where things linguistically get really interesting. Joab says that Abner came in to David... And this is the same idiom that Ishbosheth used in his accusation against Abner and the concubine. You went into her, which in the Bible means, you know, not that you sat there and filled out a worksheet about each other's personality. Okay, that's not the getting to know you that it means. It, it's, it's a, there's a sexual connotation here. He's saying that Abner went into you, David. And, and there's a lot of people who say, oh, see, he's really gay, remember? He liked Jonathan more than he liked women, and now he's got a guy coming into him. And that's not what it means. Okay, I, I'm just going to put that, stab that to death right now. He then goes on to say that um, he deceived or duped him, which is actually the same word that you use in Hebrew for, for sexual seduction. So essentially, Joab is making the same accusation against Abner that Ishbosheth did. He's seducing you and violating you, just like he seduced and violated the concubine. So who does that align in this story? Joab and Ishbosheth. They're both false accusers, and they're accusing people of sexual seduction and, and, and sexual sin. Right? He, he's saying that Abner is coming. Don't believe him. He's seducing you. He's coming into your household, and, and he's violating you. And, and this is Joab's response to Abner and David making peace. This is how angry he is. This is how upset he is about losing this man who he wants dead. Who, this man, instead of coming into his grasp where he could go to work on him, the guy has come and is gone. And this, is the, this is, reminds me of the way Peter talks to Jesus when he doesn't understand what Jesus is doing. 
He says, far be it from you to ever do such a thing. And, he's, and, and what does Peter do? He starts accusing Jesus himself. And, and, and he had just said, Peter, you are in fact the son of God. And then Jesus says, well, get behind me, Satan. So Joab, how loyal is Joab to the household of David when he's accusing the king of this kind of gross sin? So Joab and Ishbosheth are of the same household. They are false accusers like Satan. They are murderers like, like Satan. And, and, and they, they have no love for the household of God. They do not love peace. They are not men who love unity. They are men who are opposed in every way. And, and, and this is what is most ironic. Okay, here we go. Is Abner, did Abner violate anyone? Did he seduce anyone? Did Joab? Did Ishbosheth? No. And, and this is what I find to be the most ironic thing of the whole. The only character in this whole group of knuckleheads who's a seducer and a murderer and a wife stealer is David. This whole story is setting up, right? Who is the real, uh, the, the real enemy at this point? Who is the snake in David's garden? It's not Joab, it's not Abner, it's not Ishbosheth, it's David. And, and I think that it is a very subtle thing that they're doing. Okay, he, David, who we all love, David, who we all revere, is himself the man that everyone is, is accusing everyone else of being. And the, the one who's going to do the greatest good, bringing peace to the household of God, is the one who's going to destroy it through his own sins. And, and so, and this, now, the big turn. You, right, are the worst enemy in your own household. We like to blame Satan. We like to blame others. We like to blame circumstances, right? We, we start accusing people like Joab and Ishbosheth do, but the real snake in the garden is you. And, and, and this story is about that. It's about, right, you're, you may be pursuing the things that God tells you to pursue, but you may be doing it in a way that you are destroying the very thing you're pursuing. You may be chasing after your enemy, and you may be swift of foot, but in the end, there's a spear butt waiting for you because you're not stopping to consider the outcome of your decisions. You're simply saying, well, I'm pursuing what God says, right? He said be fruitful. He said to... Uh, to um, drink a lot of wine and eat a lot of meat and have a lot of festivity. And some of us use those kinds of things, and what do we do with them in the end? Right? We, he says, be fruitful and multiply and take dominion. And some of us are taking dominion with sledgehammers. Right? And we're like, well, hey, God said take dominion. And you know what I'm saying? Sometimes you've got to run over a few bodies with a bus to get the bus where the bus is going. And, and, and too many men, like guys like Trump, because that swaggering blowhard gets things done. Look at him. He's out there, and he's got the, he's, right? When he was president, everybody just loved everything he did because he's got all the right people on the run. And you're like, okay, well, he actually has the right people on the run. I, I don't disagree with that. But look at the amount of bodies under the bus. I, I remember, I mean, I, I owe a great deal to Mark Driscoll, my first pastor, uh, baptized me, actually. I, I love the man. I don't, I don't like when people overly speak ill of him. But I remember one time he said, when you're, when you're getting the bus somewhere, you're going, you're going to have a lot of bodies under the bus. I remember he said that. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> and, and, I would, and what kind of, young, as a young man, what kind of Christian do you think I went out and, and was like? If that's the kind of swaggering thing that I'm following. And, and, and so much of what is going on in the church right now is a rebellion against the right kinds of things. 
But are we doing it in such a way as that we're just simply sowing other problems? Oh, I'm going to pursue being a man of God. I'm going to be a man, and I'm going to, and, and I'm going to be fruitful, and I'm going to take dominion. And, and there are so many bodies under the bus that we could literally, right, we could start our own graveyard. And what is happening here with David is that he, it does not say at any point in, this, at this, in these chapters that he stops and asks the Lord. He does not stop and say, God, what do you want me to do? He's not considering Deuteronomy. He's considering, he's pursuing the right things in the way that he, it seems best to him. And that's the difference maker. What are you pursuing? Why are you pursuing it? How are you pursuing it? Right? You can open the Bible and you can see, okay, I come under this conviction that God wants me to do X. And you don't really sit down and consider how he wants you to get there. <laughs> you just simply go out and start pursuing the thing that you think he wants you to pursue and you do exactly what David is doing. And this is what Jesus meant. Actually, I'm going to use a parable in Matthew chapter 13. Turn with me to Matthew 13, verses 24 to 30. Matthew 13, verses 24 to 30. This is what the Lord said. Now Jesus put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do, do, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat among them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers to gather the weeds first and then burn them in bundles of the, to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now, this is what I want to say. Like David we hear this and we think, yes, the Lord God is sowing seeds in my field. I'm sowing seeds, this, the right kinds of seeds. But an enemy is coming in here to plant weeds. And what we do not consider is that you are the enemy. So we're looking out, right? Oh, my gosh, let's get our eyes, up, eyes and ears up now. What are we reading? What are we watching? What are we doing? Who are we talking to? What's the fellowship of the world? Right? What are the liberals doing? What are the progressives doing? What's the politics like? What's the, and our eyes are here, there, and everywhere except for where? The mirror. <laughs> Meanwhile, there we are with our big old bag, grabbing handfuls of seeds of both weeds and fruit and scattering them to the four winds. And sometimes when you want the bus to get where it's going, you've got to run over some people. They're in the way. And, and this is what we are doing. Now, husbands and fathers, is it possible that as you're raising your children, that you are planting alongside of the fruitful things, weeds. Ladies, is it possible that as you are loving and respecting your husband and raising your children, that you are likewise, along with the, the, the fruitful seeds, planting weeds? As we go to one another and we're very concerned about a situation that's going on in our family or a situation going on in the church or we're concerned about a person, is it possible that when we're talking about that, we are sowing the seeds of prayer and the seeds of backbiting at the same time? And that is what I am talking about. 
Okay, are, are you planting seeds of belief and unbelief in your own children's minds simultaneously? I'm going to just, it's not a rhetorical question. Yes. That, the, that's God showed up and, and put an exclamation point on it. In your marriage, are you, are you sowing both kinds of seeds? Now, I, right, this is always how it works. We do need sanctified wisdom. Are there enemies attempting to sow seeds? Yes. But as we see this story with David, I'm not kidding. Who, right now, who is enemy number one in Israel? In his own household, in his own kingdom, the kingdom he's pursuing peace in, the kingdom that he, his household that he's building, who is its number one enemy? And we look for bogeymen everywhere but in the clothes we're wearing. Okay? But the enemy is in the fortress. The enemy is inside us. And this is the thing... You know, there are principalities and powers of the air. We have to get that straight. That's a difficult idea, and we've got to get it straight. But, but, you know, you don't always need a principality and power of the air. You just need you. And, and, right? and, and what comes with you are seeds of fruitfulness and, and weeds. And we've got to slow down and ask God, God, show me my heart like Nathan showed David his heart. He, he, he captured his imagination and opened his eyes and gave him insight into his own life so that he could see his sin for what it was. And once he did that, he sits down and writes Psalm 51. And that's why he has a heart for God. But before that, he doesn't have a heart for God because he's, per, he's Jesus. Otherwise, we wouldn't have needed Jesus. Jesus is the only one who came and sowed nothing but good seeds. And David's not him, and you're not him, and I'm not him. 2 Corinthians chapter 13 Verse 5, it says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Test yourselves. Why are, what are you doing? Why are you doing it? How are you doing it? And, and if that sounds legalistic to you, come and see me afterwards. Okay? Because <laughs> Jesus said, if you love me, you will, you will follow my commands. Did he say other things? Yes. But this is a part of the faith that moderns get all twisted up, and we don't understand it. You believe? Awesome. Super. Super. Great. Now, because you believe, what are you doing? Why are you doing it? How are you doing it? And, and there's little people watching, and there's neighbors watching, and there's coworkers watching, and God is watching. And, and we've got to get this straight, Right? David has, has, has gotten away from his original plan, which was to build on the foundation given to him by God. He's building something bigger than that, and the house is going to crumble. And, and this is why, I think, this is behind the language of Paul in Ephesians. He says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the lord in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for god by the spirit now i don't know if if this is a little too meta but but i i will finish with just a couple of examples that are helpful to me like here's an example in my own life i love classical education okay there is also this famous line about be, be wary of greeks bearing gifts so when my kids sit down and they're reading ancient pagan literature, ought I to be careful about what gets planted? And, and so as the Christian education movement is making this comeback and we're succeeding, we're like, yeah, this, 
This boss is getting down the road, right? We are sowing seeds here. We, we have to be careful and slow down and ask a lot of questions about what we're doing, why we're doing it, and how we're doing it. Okay, we want to restore the right, right kind of male headship. <laughs> what could possibly go wrong, right? Oh, you want us to be tough guys who say hard things to hard hearts, and you want us to be strong, and you want us to be men. What could, what could conceivably go wrong? Okay, okay, now let, let's, let's resist the enemies out there, and, and, and let, let's, let's resist feminism, and let's have ladies who get back to what they're really supposed to be about. Oh, what could possibly go wrong, right? We couldn't possibly be like our ancestors who denied college education to women, right? We couldn't conceivably be like that again, could we? The people of God are not yet glorified. We are not. So we are, what are we building with? We have seeds to plant that are going to grow and be fruitful things. But we still have a lot of uh, seeds that grow weeds. And, and, and we are a mixed bag. And what I want is for us to, to unlike Asahel, slow down. Slow down. And let's ask some questions. Is this what God wants us to do? Right? Is this the goal he wants us to pursue? Okay, how does he want us to get there? Well, right, if David would have done this, he would have found out not by a whole bunch of wives. <laughs> so what are you doing that's equivalent? You may be pursuing things that, that glorify God, that are awesome, that God loves, and you may be doing it in the wrong way. And you may be planting seeds of fruitfulness, but you're also planting seeds of weeds, and we've got to learn the difference. Right? That, that is how our, our marriages get stronger, that is how our households get stronger. That's how the people of God, right? This is unity. We, this is peace. This is goodness. When we're pursuing the right things the right way. And, and, and we're not going to get there as individuals. We're going to get there as a people. That's what God intended, right? It's a bus. It's, <laughs> it's not a motorcycle. And so we need one another in this pursuit. We need people who've been there before. People who've seen a thing or two because they've been through a thing or two. We need people who, right? I need... If, if your hair is gray, I need your failures as much as I need your successes, just like my kids need mine. If you, if you are young and energetic, right, there are old people here who need your, your youth and your energy. Are you sick? You need someone who's well. Think about this. We're, we're not driving a motorcycle down the road. It's a bus. Right? But there on the bus, there's that, that thing, that reader board. What's it, where's the destination, okay? And, and, and is everybody on the bus, or is there some people under the bus? This is what, I, I, this, is what this story means to me. This is what it, it reveals to me, and it's, and it's what we need to seriously consider. And, and David is the vehicle. It's glorious. He's still pursuing, by pursuing God, right and wrong, he's teaching us how to pursue God in the right way and the wrong way. And, and we should be grateful for that, but truly consider it. Amen. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your kindness to us. We thank you, Lord, for the ministry of David and Joab and Abner and Ishbosheth. Lord, these are men of your household, Lord, whose faithfulness and unfaithfulness are examples to us, Lord. You are teaching and instructing us through your word how to pursue you, why to pursue you, Lord, uh, what the destination is, Lord, and how we are best to get there. We thank you and we praise you, and we pray you would give us a great deal of wisdom and compassion and understanding uh, as we are... um, Uh, taking dominion and bearing fruit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.